This is Simulcast, a high-fidelity podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to our next of our collaborations with Advances in Simulation here at Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined today by two guests who are going to be talking about an important topic, simulation and safety. Now, as you know, we do this collaboration with Advances in Simulation, and the reason for this one is the joint publication of an article by Dan Raymer and colleagues entitled Simulation Safety First, an Imperative. And in fact, it's published today jointly by Advances, Simulation in Healthcare and the Journal of Surgical Simulation uh, by Dan Raymer, Alex Hannenberg and Anne Mullen. And I think this editorial really picks up on some important issues in simulation safety. And we, in fact, did a podcast episode with Anne Mullen uh, a year or so ago, and the feedback we got from that was enormous and how a lot of people just really hadn't thought about this issue of the fact we might be causing safety issues through simulation, not just resolving them. So uh, I'll introduce my guests. First of those is Dan Raymer. How are you, Dan? I'm well. How are you? Very well, thank you. Many of you in the simulation community know Dan Raymer. He's had a long career uh, in sim and medical education. Uh, He's originally a bioengineer by training, but has worked in surgery and anesthesia departments for his entire working life. He's been part of the Society for Simulation and Healthcare from the beginning and, in fact, was the first president of the founding board of overseers. Um, He describes himself now as being in partial retirement, and I can vouch for that from his stories. Uh, But one of his ongoing passions is this foundation for healthcare simulation safety that we're going to be referencing today. So to discuss his editorial and some of the other issues related to this, we have Cara Allen with us. How are you, Cara? Well, thanks, Vic. How are you? Good, good. You're another friend of Simulcast, and as our listeners might recall, Cara's an anaesthetist who's been involved with uh, interprofessional simulation, but also education and systems testing sim. She's developed the CRASH and STAR courses, which run across Australia and New Zealand, which help critical care specialists navigate career transitions and return to work after leave. She's actually worked in a number of different simulation settings, um, including standalone centres and also in situ simulation, which is going to be very useful for our discussion today. So let's get into this topic, simulation safety. Uh, Dan, let's start with you. What What is the problem here? Why have we got to the point where we need an editorial in three of the key simulation journals on this topic? Tell us how you got here. Well, um, so it is unusual to uh, have publication in simultaneous journals in any setting, uh, but I felt, uh, our group felt that this was an important enough topic that was very generic and every simulationista uh, out there practicing the craft should be well aware of some of the safety hazards and some of the shortcuts that are inherent in our practice uh, that could lead to harm of individuals patient staff, um, uh, course participants, and, and so on. And I think your, your comment uh, early, as you started that you interviewed Anne Mullen about a year ago and the response of people was very often, gee, I never thought of that. Um, we still hear that all the time. 
And so I think the editorial was written to try to reach as many individuals as we possibly could. And because this is an issue for all of us, um, I thought that um, people who read one or other of the journals would uh, perhaps stumble upon it and give it some thought. Alrighty, so if we can get practical, your editorial starts with a case study, uh, which looks like a in-situ sim going really well, identifying key issues in health service practice and teamwork, but which ends with a medication error where a simulated medication is used with a real patient. Uh, and then you go on to detail many of these that more specific nature of these problems, some of which are uh, fake medications being used on real patients, fake equipment being used, but also other things in terms of people breaking into cars because their concerned mannequins are unwell. Uh, can you give us a little sense of some of the other specific examples that have occurred and that have been reported? So the one that's uh, uh, most talked about, and I think the one that uh, really convinced uh, Ann Mullen and Alex Hannenberg and me to, you know, dedicate some time and energy to this issue was the incident that occurred in uh, New York State in the United States, and it was an incident where a hospital. Um, simulation center had been using commercial intravenous fluid uh, for simulation. And so if you've been to any of the meetings, you know there are companies that sell uh, various products for simulation, and there's a company that sells um, IV bags, and they're filled with tap water, and they're labeled for education only. Uh, nonetheless, um, uh, so, so the simulation center used them without incident. Um, however, in order to order that intravenous fluid, uh, they had to go through the hospital ordering system. And so it turned out that the simulation center's orders and the things they order somehow appeared on the clinical listing of uh, products. And so there were some outpatient clinics in this hospital system who needed uh, some cases of IV fluid. And so they went online to their ordering system. And you could imagine, you know, all of the forms of intravenous fluid that are listed on a hospital ordering system. And so somehow they clicked on the one that was for simulation. So cases of this simulated IV fluid appeared in their outpatient clinics, and uh, in the uh, analysis that followed the incident, it was discovered that at least 40 patients had received uh, IV fluid, which was tap water, uh, um, for their outpatient procedures. Um, so that's really striking when you think about it. It meant that f roughly 40 clinician opportunities to notice that the IV fluid was incorrect um, were passed over, and all of these patients received this dirty water in their veins. 
a couple of the patients at least were reported to have become septic and wound up in the ICU. And uh, the, one of the patients uh, uh, subsequently died. It, uh, the investigations by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States um, were, were unclear whether the death was directly a result of the sepsis from the IV fluid, but um, uh, I think that's uh, pretty likely. And so the notion that a patient died from uh, uh, simulation-related activities was pretty abhorrent to all of us and uh, really was kind of a wake-up call especially when we think we're about uh, improving patient safety. So that's a pretty dramatic example. Uh, Bizarrely, it probably has helped identify issues with their medication safety protocols in the hospital. So obviously that's not the way that we intended it to do. But interestingly, these really highlight problems with our real-world processes. The other thing it highlights to me is clearly, although some of the airtime for this has been around in situ simulation, that was actually in a simulation, that was a simulation centre fluid. It wasn't even like they were doing this sim within the clinical environment. So clearly there are significant risks there. Cara, while we're still getting on to what is the problem here. I'm interested in your general perspective. But uh, one thing I'd like to sort of reflect on is, you know, clearly people don't tend to write up their adverse events like that. And one of the problems I get the sense is we've got no idea what the baseline is in terms of numbers or types of safety issues. And uh, I'm old enough to remember when we really did start counting things like this in the 80s and 90s in healthcare, but it seems similar that we really almost need to get a grip of the problem before we can really get good at the solutions. Mm. Yes, I agree, Vic. I mean, I think there's an element of not knowing either the numerator or the denominator. So we don't know, you know, how many in-situ sims are we doing across Australia, for example, and then how many of those in-situ sims turn up something that, you know, may be a safety violation for a patient, participant or staff. So um, I, I guess I kind of look at that and think, well, when we look at these 10 commandments, you know, what, what are going to be some of the challenges for me as a clinician implementing them? And that is kind of an indication to me of how big the problem is. So like you say, you know, we've, we've looked at reporting uh, safety or errors in healthcare for quite a long period of time now to ch- turn our focus to simulation and say, not only what are we finding that's wrong with the clinical environment, but what are we discovering about ourselves and how we respond to those things um, is really indicative of still some of those attitudes that carry on from uh, error is inevitable, um, some negative outcomes for patients are inevitable, and what does that mean for providing an environment that does replicate the clinical environment but also encourages uh, behaviour and performance that is, is a, sets a standard to carry back into that of, of reduction of error and improving patient safety. So, you know, as an example of... Um, of something that I think is is you know potentially quite challenging is that example of that Dan brought up of the fluid being administered to patients and how Dan said you know that's forty situations where somebody uh, checked the IV fluid before administering to each patient and continued to do it even though it didn't match what the patient was prescribed or didn't match a protocol or a form that existed somewhere in the hospital and that's a really challenging thing for that clinician to come to terms with as well. Yeah, so lots of risks all round. Uh, 
And as you say, you know, hard to know how to report these things. Do we do it through our standard hospital things? Do we have our own simulation programs? And of course, a lot of this is simulation activity that might not even happen within a dedicated simulation program, much less centre. And I think that's also a challenge for us. Just as we want to normalise sim as part of everyday educational practice, it means that sometimes some of these systems and uh, other issues get left behind. Dan, do you have a sort of sense, I know since you've been running your Foundation for Healthcare Simulation Safety, you've encouraged people to report to you, but do you have any thoughts on this quantification of the problem issue? Yeah, yeah I, I think I really liked what Kara said about, um, uh, you know, thinking about this and analyzing how to do simulation education safely. Um, really is a window into ourselves and how we respond to all safety violations in our life. Um, so uh, it's just really easy not to report them. Uh, you know, it's human nature. If, uh, if you make an error and nobody notices, uh, um, why are you going, and there's no harm done and you catch it before it, you know, causes harm. Um, there, there's a there's huge incentives to just be quiet about it, and not go through the work, the potential embarrassment, the uh, the the uh, fixes you might have to implement. And so, I I think you know, as as human beings, <laughs> and as clinicians, uh, and as simulationistas, we need to constantly look at ourselves and say, are we are we prepared to be truly honest about um, safety in in all of its uh, facets? You know, safety for the patient, safety for ourselves. Um, uh, for our educational subjects, and and so I th I think that's a, such a good point that the real crux of the matter is, you know, how do we how do we act ourselves, um, and and so you know so reporting is a is a good point. Now I think I think you you're, you're hitting on something that's really critical that. There isn't a mandatory reporting system. There isn't a reliable reporting system. Reporting systems vary tremendously uh, from country to country. I can tell you in the United States with a litigious uh, uh, climate we have here that, you know, incident reporting is always a struggle. And, uh, you know, if you look at the number of just hospital incidents that get reported, it's a pretty tiny number for a, a giant number of interactions, which must have some incidents that go unreported. Yeah, so, and it would be interesting. I think it's probably a, a sitting um, opportunity for people to do uh, some more survey work or audit work on simulation safety incidents because I'm sure if they just contacted a whole range of people that run programs, uh, you know, I could tell you a number of things, small and little, that I think uh, I'm aware of in our simulation program, um, but, you know, they don't seem to reach the level of writing up uh, touch wood, none of them have reached a critical incident for the hospital, but um, I think there'd be plenty of opportunities that people could uh, voice their own incidents for. 
One of the ones that I didn't see mentioned, because as you identify a lot of medication errors in your list of things that happen or equipment safety things, physical safety threats, one of the other ones that I'd introduce in terms of insight, Sam, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, Cara, is the idea of threats to system integrity. And I mean that really broadly. We ran a disaster sim a couple of weeks ago, and it involved going up to the operating theatre and lots of people, and you kind of go, so if you cancel a list, that actually is a risk as well. Uh, and even if you delay people coming into the ED. Now, we might think it's worth that, but I wonder how rigorous a process we go through in terms of prospectively identifying what kind of threats to system integrity that we're doing. Mm, Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, for example, I know um, know that there's a lot of go no go discussion in the literature about going ahead with simulation in the maternity or labor wards and also in in ed and there's less of that discussion i think around operating theaters uh the question that you raise of you know system integrity cancelling an elective list in order to go ahead with a sim the evidence from the emergency literature suggests that patients are very pro doctors and nurses and other staff members being trained using simulation and that they will you know, accept a longer wait time in the emergency department and are not particularly upset about the idea of a simulation going ahead in the emergency department within their hearing or with their knowledge because they understand that that's part of education and part of maintaining uh, a functioning health service. And it's just, it's interesting because that question really reflects what is the value that we place on SIM as clinicians, as patients, as educators, and as medical or nursing administration, do we think that SIM is a valuable exercise, so much so that we'll actually commit hospital resources to doing it? Yes, and uh, just for listeners, uh, just a reference to the episode we did with Damien Rowland and Stephanie Barwick where we talked about some of that uh, patient perceptions of simulation that Cara's referring to as well as one of the references in Dan's editorial, uh, the great work by Komal Bajaj and her colleagues in New York uh, with the no-go criteria that they had published recently. Well, Cara, that's a nice segue into one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, of course, we are talking about the risks of doing the sim, but of course there are risks of not doing it. Um, and I know it's very – oh, go for it, Dan. Uh, uh, bef- before you go ahead, uh, can, can I comment on the uh, uh, question you asked, Cara, because no. I think I have a good story. Oh, great. Go for it. Um, so, so one of the uh, uh, one of the aspects of this is um, c- can you control all of the um, system uh, resources and inform all the system resources when you do an inside to sim. So uh, years ago, when I first started doing inside to sim, uh, and I was particularly anxious about it, I must say, I did a simulation in a uh, obst- obstetrical ward, and uh, we, it was a big teaching hospital. They had four operative delivery rooms. I informed everyone that I could possibly think of and got permission to use one of the operative delivery rooms. And we chose a time that we thought they wouldn't be in use and that there would be a backup one, you know, you know, if something happened, but obstetrics being so unpredictable during our simulation, the other three operative delivery rooms uh, had filled up with patients uh, undergoing cesarean section. Uh, 
we had a successful simulation. We all came out of the sim- the uh, the operative delivery room. People were, you know, laughing and patting each other on the back and kind of carrying on as they often do after they participate in a simulation. And we marched ourselves down the hallway to a, a coffee room to have a debriefing. And on the way, a nurse came out of a room that was adjacent and kind of grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and said, I'm so angry at you. And I didn't know her. I couldn't imagine what she was talking about. And what she told me was that she had a a couple uh, with her who were waiting for that operative delivery room because they had suffered a stillbirth and she uh, required a DNE, and uh, and they were extremely upset, emotionally upset, because of all the carrying on that they heard uh, from the staff participants in the simulation. I, I felt just terrible, and I still feel terrible because you know the hospital is a place where lots of important life things happen, sad things happen. And, you know, stumbling upon that by accident seemed almost cruel to me, uh, even though there was absolutely no intention of hurting anyone uh, in our simulation. And it kind of taught me a lesson that, you know, as careful as I was in trying to inform everyone, um, I, I, I somehow missed out on some people who were turned out to be the most important ones. Yes, and I think that example sort of resonates. Uh, preparation and safety plans is not something you can just do and then set. It is ongoing during simulations, and uh, certainly that's a great argument for really needing ongoing communication and safety awareness uh, during during the, those things happening. Um, just while we, you know, I did want to pick up on uh, the idea, Cara, that you'd raised before and particularly focus on uh, the risks of not doing this because at the same time we do want to know that this is going to be a risk-benefit analysis all the time. And I know just because it's very topical at the moment, the Northern Beaches Hospital uh, here in Australia down in Sydney, there's been a lot of media and, in fact, it's very been very interesting uh, how much simulation or references to readiness testing not happening at the hospital have uh, featured even in the lay media. Um, have you got any sort of thoughts on that for us? Yes, it's interesting because the, the, as soon as I read that first article that came out, I thought to myself, I bet no site testing went ahead with with people who were trained to look at latent safety threats who were, you know, interested in is staffing appropriate, what's the location of equipment, how do you make contact within the hospital and outside the hospital, you know, all of those sort of things that seem can seem really straightforward to us as clinicians, but, you know, when you're not working in that environment, it can be really hard to bring those aspects in. Uh, and it turns out that, in fact, um, it's become apparent through social media that actually people had offered to do in situ simulation testing of the uh, environment before they opened and, and that that was refused for a variety of, of reasons that haven't been discussed either in social media or in the lay media. The thing that struck me about some of the reports in the media is that these are not new reports. You know, there's been situations that mirror this from new hospitals opening since uh, 2006 was one of the earlier ones in Australia 
uh, where there was a hospital in Victoria where the Met team didn't have access, swipe card access to all areas of the hospital. And that was only discovered when there was a really unfortunate incident um, and a patient came to harm. And to me, that's one of those situations where the opportunity to actually take a Met team around the hospital and make sure that they've got access to all the areas that they need to have access to, that's a relatively inexpensive fix. It's obviously a key operational part of the hospital. And again, when you when you think about things like system integrity, that's absolutely key to system integrity that, that staff have the equipment and the facility access that they need to do the job that they need to do. All right. So I'm just going to sort of catch on where we're up to here. So we think we've got to have a risk assessment for any simulation that we're doing. Clearly, we are hopeful that there's advantages to safety. But I think what Dan's work and others have identified is probably we haven't been cognizant enough of the risks that may result from SIM. And these may be at the patient level, at the staff level, or at the system level. So let's now turn our thoughts to what can we do about it? Because I guess this is uh, where you've offered us some thoughts in the editorial, Dan. Um, And there's a sort of range of categories of things and 10 commandments. Uh, And many of the things that you mentioned, and we can sort of go through, touch on a few of them, but are around labeling of medication, around restricting access to various simulation equipment, obviously having institutional policies uh, and using frameworks uh, to sort of proactively assess the safety risks. Do you want to sort of talk me through how you sort of came up with um, many what sound like common sense ideas, but um, how did you start to think about the mitigation strategies? Yeah, so um, there's certainly simple, straightforward kinds of things that uh, with a little bit of awareness, uh, you know, everyone ought to be thinking about and doing. Um, I do want to mention the labeling because uh, there's there's a, a something specific about that, and that is to try to get the simulation community to adopt the same label. Uh, so you know, labels are tricky business. They're sort of weak mitigators of safety risks. Uh, there are signs for all sorts of things that get ignored in our daily lives. Uh, but we do learn to recognize some patterns, you know, think of the traffic signs that you deal with all the time. You don't need to actually read them. They become recognizable to you. And so that notion that there be kind of a standard label that says uh, to every clinician, oh, this is for educational use, that might be a helpful strategy. Um, I'm just going to pause right there because I want to give a practical note here for our listeners. So if you go onto the uh, Foundation for Healthcare Sim- Simulation Safety site, so this is where Dan and Anne's uh foundation is housed so that's uh, we'll put the link in the show notes but it's basically healthcaresimulationsafety.org or one word healthcaresimulationsafety.org and you can actually download those labels there in different sizes and print them out so that is a free thing for everybody in pursuit of this trying to get some consistency done yeah so the uh you know so the label was designed uh um as best we could with as much input as we could garner in a short time because we wanted it to happen quickly um uh 
very fortunately, my son is a uh, is an artist, uh, a product designer, and so uh, so I was able to hire him to make that label. Um, <laughs> so uh, um, kudos to him. Uh, yeah. So so coming up with with standard labels with um, um, you know a, a, a set of kind of very basic. Um, uh, safety steps to take seemed like a good first step. I am not kidding myself. We are not kidding ourselves that if you do those things, that accidents won't happen. Uh, because we know from the world of healthcare that in spite of all sorts of steps we take to mitigate safety hazards, we know this from other industries, they still manage to happen. Um, the incident that I spoke of, of the IV fluid, um, I, it's, it's probably quite unlikely that anything that was done in the simulation lab would have prevented that for sure. Mm. So, um, you it was know, merely the existence really of the simulation lab. I'm sorry. The, it was merely the existence of the simulation lab that. It, it, right. And their routine practices, which, you know, they, they, I'm sure were oblivious to the possibility that someone in the hospital would order something that, that was for simulation only that they used all the time. It just, it's just kind of not human nature to think of those things. And so, so I think, um, you know, I think a set of basic steps could really make an impact on the problem and prevent most all of the incidents that potentially could occur, but, you know, they still will, um, they still will happen unless further steps are taken. Mm -hmm. So just for listeners, uh, we do recommend you have a look at this editorial. It's not a long read. It's very full of useful uh, tips and practical examples. And the Ten Commandments that we're referencing are listed in a table. I won't read them all out word for word, but essentially they go through the labelling issue we've just talked about, uh, educating the folks involved in simulation uh, programs about potential hazards to patients, participants and staff, um, thinking about participants also and informing them at simulation events about safety issues, uh, having institutional policies uh, and to proactively think about safety threats each time. Uh, there's also a mention of negative training in here, i.e. making sure that we don't inadvertently convey uh, shortcuts like not wearing gloves, uh, which we're aware of. Uh, as well as that, thinking about these processes of reporting um, and of putting medications that we may have put into a simulated environment or into a real environment and making sure that essentially there's an accountability for bringing them back out of a clinical environment. So useful sort of Ten Commandments. Uh, Cara, can I just have your sort of thoughts on that? The anaesthetists are usually not short on an opinion about labelling medication. <laughs> no, well, we're not short on an opinion about almost anything I think Vic um so I it really I really my neck's getting a bit sore from all the nodding that I'm doing as Dan's speaking about about things and I, I agree with you one of the things that I love about this editorial is the practical examples and how broad those examples are not just as you say in terms of um, medication safety or of equipment safety but also the impact on clinicians of um, potentially adverse outcomes to patients at the end of it which is obviously what we're wanting to prevent 
And I am really struck by um, the breadth of these commandments in terms of thinking about things, as you say, like negative learning. And and, um, given that learning is always occurring, what are some of the situations where we're accidentally teaching something that we don't intend to communicate? And I've got a brief anecdote about that that came up recently um, with some in-situ simulations that we ran where a junior member of staff was handed a syringe and was told, this is saline, but just pretend it's ketamine for uh, an induction and intubation. And two or three weeks later, when they were setting up for an intubation, um, the consultant pointed out that there was no sedation that was drawn up. And the, the junior staff member said, oh, I don't need to give sedation. When we did that sim, we just flushed the drip with saline. And to me, that was such an interesting And when you dug a bit deeper, there were other factors there too in terms of the sedation needs to be signed out by two nurses, it needs to be double-checked, there are risks with giving sedation. And so this staff member genuinely was, you know, intelligent, highly trained, wanted to do their best in those situations, but had taken away the message from this in situ sim that sedation is more trouble than it's worth, essentially, for an intubation in a sick patient. And that had been sort of propagated by, you know, a number of other factors around them. But this, this concept of, you know, not having, not having the drug there to protect the staff members or protect them from diversion essentially meant that this person took away, you know, the wrong message. And I think that's, you know, a situation where we can have these messages that we communicate without intending to and sometimes we don't know that we're doing that unless there's, you know, follow-up, unless there's examination and intent. That happens even after the simulation's finished. So, you know, I hear stories like that and I just think to myself, when have I communicated messages in teaching that I don't intend to? And when have my learners learned something that I don't intend for them to learn? Mm. And, of course, uh, that's not restricted to simulation, Cara, if we are. No. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But I think it's, I mean, particularly if you look at, you know, number six where it says we don't leave incorrect actions in a simulation out of debriefing discussions and we put simulation safety ahead of cost, expediency and even fidelity. I mean, that's almost that's almost um, blasphemous in the simulation community. We put anything ahead of fidelity, you know, so I really, I love how it's the primary thing is safety for everyone who's involved in the sim, but also beyond that, you know, thinking outside the walls of where we're actually doing the, doing the simulation, thinking about the potential repercussions it has for others. Yes, and I think that can be, um, well, it's relevant for all learners, but particularly junior learners where we might lose sight of the fact that they might not have the fundamentals. One of the things I worry about, but at least am cognizant of and try and brief and debrief against is that we use a lot of simulated patients with our medical student uh, programs. And of course, and then we partner them with the iSimulate monitors, which will tell them that the heart rate's 120. And of course, they put their finger on the pulse and it's only 60. And what we're sending a message is that the monitor is always right, not the patient, Mm. which is obviously not the intended message. And we do talk about that, but I think it would be very easy. I wonder what things I'm not cognizant of that they are taking away, where there is a mismatch from the lessons intended and the ones taken away. And that's not even starting on things like cultural messages and hidden curriculum. Mm. 
All right, so we've got our uh, Ten Commandments here. As you say, there's lots of practical thoughts and approaches. Um, I can tell you what I've done differently as a result of Dan and Anne's work, and then I'm interested to hear what Cara does differently. But two things that we've done in our program, one is we are actually getting together a proper uh, in-situ simulation safety policy because I think just the process of putting that together is useful. And the second thing is I've taken to doing a short safety briefing with the team before each sim, including anyone who's involved in delivery. So I'm not deluding myself. These things are perfect, but they're examples of what actually I have done differently as a result. Um, and certainly just a general awareness has been very useful for me. But I'm wondering, Cara, did, before we go back to Dan, did you want to offer what you've started doing differently? So one of the um, things that I've started doing is emailing centres before I arrive to request that they are explicit about what they do in terms of um, schedule four and schedule eight drugs and then get, and get that in writing. And one of the reasons that I do that is because um, if you take, for example, volatile anaesthetic agents, the equipment that we use alerts us to the absence of volatile anaesthetic agents unless it's been, unless the software has been changed not to do that. So we can override that obviously from an interface perspective, but if there's not volatile in the vaporizer, the system will continue to alarm. And that's very distracting for participants. So from a safety perspective, I don't want volatile in the vaporizer, but from a fidelity perspective, I do want volatile in the vaporizer, otherwise the system will alarm. So that's been one of the, the practical aspects of running anesthetic sims of having to get the software adjusted on equipment so that we don't include volatile in a vaporizer and the participants are unaware that volatile is not actually circulating through the circuit. So providing that fidelity whilst not compromising safety has meant that there's been a few sort of interactions between me and different simulation centres. Some were all over it, some, you know, completely that was the process and some were still using volatile because, you know, otherwise the system alarms. Um, and then, you know, that raises all these questions about how that's managed. But getting that information in writing and then sending it around to the faculty beforehand so everybody's very clear the, the drugs are labelled as Schedule 4 or Schedule 8 drugs, but they are saline or they're, you know, some other form of replica and there will be no volatile for the vaporizer. but here's how to overcome the issues with the system that might exist from that. So that's just two really practical, simple things that, that I'm st I started doing. Yeah, well, Maybe practical and simple, but it shows the amount of forethought that does need to go into it. Just for our international listeners, Schedule 4 and Schedule 8 refer to what you might call DDs or dangerous drugs or things that you have to sign out. Uh, all right, well, Dan, we're probably coming full circle now, um, looking to sort of summarise what we've heard and what we know. We know we've got a problem. We're not sure how big it is or even exactly what the granular nature of it is. Uh, we're very keen to think about ways to mitigate because we do think there are risks in not doing this kind of thing. Um, we're finding your Ten Commandments very useful and we hope they're widely disseminated. Uh, have you got some sort of, having heard out what we're doing differently or what we think about it, have you got some thoughts, practical thoughts about next steps for those who are listening? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure I can add practical thoughts. I, I love what you're doing and what this has gotten you to think about and uh, put into your practice. And uh, this is a great way to share those things. I think that's terrific. Um, the discussion, though, does make me think about um, 
you know, where we are in simulation. And so, you know, I was around at sort of the beginning of uh the, the modern era of simulation in healthcare. And, you know, it's been about 25 years or so. And, and I, I, I like to step back and think about, you know, where have we been and, uh, and, and how we're coming along. And, and it reminds me how, um, how much we're still in the toddler phase. <laughs> the fact that simulation, we have to, take all of these fidelity shortcuts and we and we take all sorts of um uh uh shortcuts and we do simulation in the in the real environment the so-called in situ simulation and and it's so valuable and we don't have an alternative and i think it's really wonderful we're doing it but it does represent how primitive we are Alrighty, well, here's to the journey, I say, and uh, obviously there's many things about healthcare that we'd like to change, but uh, I think it does emphasise the complexity of what we're up against and the difficulty of replicating the layers of things that we know are relevant to practice. But uh, I'm with you, Dan. Here's to the journey and uh, thoughtful reflection on what we're doing is always a good idea. So I'd really like to thank my guests for their lovely comments today and uh, check in for any sort of final words from you, Cara. I really loved that story that Dan told earlier about the uh, running an obstetric simulation and, you know, just some of the unanticipated consequences of that, both from the candour that Dan share has in sharing his experience and in situations where he wished the outcome was different. I think if I can just go metacog for a second, that's part of what this is about, the idea of bringing out these areas or these problems or these threats to safety and saying this exists, we're not going to shy away from it, we're going to address it because it makes us better clinicians and it enables us to provide better care for our patients. I think, you know, having somebody with um, Dan's stature in the simulation community acknowledging that there are situations where doesn't all go as planned, maybe for reasons completely outside of your control, but looking at that and thinking, well, what will I do better next time? Again, that's part of the journey. That's part of us growing as a community of practice, as educators. So thanks, Dan, for sharing that. Hmm. Well, um, beautifully said, Cara, and believe me, you can go metacog on simulcast any day. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you both. And uh, just again, Please do read the editorial. We'll have a link to that on our show notes, uh, but you can get it at any of those three journals. Um, and as well as that, go and visit the Foundation for Healthcare Simulation Safety site. That's healthcaresimulationsafety.org, uh, where you'll find more of the work from Dan and Anne and Alex. Uh, thank you both for your time today. I'm Victoria Brazel from Simulcast and our collaboration with Advances in Simulation. Thanks again for another great episode, and we'll look forward to seeing you again. We'd love to hear from you. Contact or comment at simulationpodcast.com.